you have the insert in your bulletin. You want to get that out. It says the temptation of Joseph on it. We are in Genesis 39. Again, it's a long chapter. But we will go through it hopefully carefully uh, this morning. So I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 39 and let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. We pray that you would instruct our hearts by your word this morning as we think of your sovereign providence, especially those providences which may confuse us, which lead us to think you're against us or you've forgotten us or you have no purpose for us. Give us the grace to sit with Joseph and to wait patiently on the Lord and be confident that you will provide because you are good. Work your word into our lives this day, and by the power of your spirit, bring about the change that's needed in each one of us. For this, we need your grace, and we need greater faith. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you like to root for the underdog, then you got to love the movie the Karate Kid, the original one from 84, not the re-release from two years ago. The original was much better. It's about a teenager named Daniel who gets in trouble with the local bullies, and he turns to an elderly Japanese neighbor, Mr. Miyagi, to teach him karate. But instead of learning how to beat down the bad guys, Daniel spends his time doing chores for Mr. Miyagi, sanding floors and waxing cars and painting fences. And soon Daniel gets fed up, so he confronts Mr. Miyagi, and he finally gets the karate lesson he needs. And you can see the realization dawn on Daniel's face as Mr. Miyagi shows him the simple movements of wax on, wax off, paint the fence and sand the floor, wind up being able to block punches and kicks. And the entire time that Daniel was doing these seemingly mindless chores, he's actually learning valuable lessons. And I thought sometimes that's the way it is for us too. We go through our routine day after day and feel as if nothing's happening. We're not getting anywhere. We're in a rut. And then one day it dawns on us that God has been teaching us all along. Think about Joseph, whose life we're studying now. He keeps getting put into bad situations. He's sold into slavery, he's punished for being righteous, and he's put into prison unjustly, and that's just in this chapter. And while he's stuck in prison, the warden put him in charge of all the inmates, and it's likely that the skills Joseph learned there helped him to manage the whole of Egypt years later. I think about Moses. He spent 40 years as a shepherd. I imagine that can get a little mind-numbing at times. But little did he know that herding those sheep was preparing him for the enormous task of herding the Israelites through the desert. So what's your life like? At times, is it boring? Routine? Do you ever wonder what's it all for? Our text today encourages you to keep going. 
No matter what your task, put your heart into it. As Colossians 3 teaches us, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So no matter how boring, how difficult, how routine, or how challenging, God is using every aspect of your life to teach you something. And that's exactly what's going on here in Genesis 39. God is using incredible hardship and unjust treatment to prepare his man Joseph to accomplish his purposes for his people. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you, and not just an electronic one, but a real one. Anyways, turn with me to Genesis 39. These last few weeks we started studying the last section of the book of Genesis, which has the story of the life of Joseph. We said several times now there's two things that you need to understand uh, in this section to understand um, this part of the book. First of all, the story of uh, Joseph tells us how Israel wound up in Egypt. And second, explains to us how the promise of God in Genesis 12 is fulfilled to make Abraham's family, a great family though it was, into a great nation. And the story of Joseph goes a long way in explaining that. In so doing, Moses tells us a number of things about this man, Joseph. Although he's the leading character of the story, we've also said that above and beyond the life of Joseph, the theme of God's sovereign providence runs throughout these passages. We already saw that in Genesis 37. We even saw it two weeks ago in Genesis 38. That passage looked like a digression and presented things that are uncomfortable to speak of. But at any rate, even that passage highlights for us the providence of God. And it's going to be used to contrast the character of Joseph with his brother Judah. And unlike Judah, Joseph is a man of faithfulness and righteousness. And it's going to continue to show us God's purposes and God's providence for Israel through Joseph. So this morning we turn again to Joseph and his predicament in Egypt. Well, two weeks ago I said that the digression about Judah was sort of like a meanwhile back at the ranch. Well, we've left the ranch now and we've come back and see that Joseph is on the train tracks. And Moses has taken us back to that predicament in Egypt. So let's turn to Genesis 39, where we see that Joseph has success in facing slavery. Joseph has success in facing slavery, starting at verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house, for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So we leave 
uh, we, we last uh, saw young Joseph essentially trudging brokenhearted down to Egypt as a tethered slave, destitute of any family, destitute of any support at all, without a glimmer of hope and having plenty of reasons for bitterness and resentment. And Joseph had been stripped of his clothing by his own brothers, tossed in a pit for what appeared to be a lingering death. He probably pleaded with them for mercy, although the text doesn't explicitly say that. And his execution is only averted by the providential appearance of an Ishmaelite caravan bound for Egypt and the exchange of a few shekels. Joseph had been this naive, godly boy with a bright future. But now, from all outward appearances, he's been abandoned by both God and man. Joseph had every reason for distrust and anger. Common reactions uh, somewhat demand that he cherish thoughts of revenge. But Joseph makes a different choice, a remarkable choice, because as he shuffled through the dust down to Egypt, he chose to trust God with all of his life. And that's astonishing. A quick scan of his soul reveals no spiritual malignancies. There isn't a trace of the cancers of hatred or bitterness or revenge, no matter how close we look. And he does suffer in this story, even though we don't directly see it. But Psalm 105 tells us that God sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. So instead, we're awestruck when years later in the story, we witness that, through Joseph, that though Joseph's going to eventually have all of his brothers in the palm of his hand, with every terror possible at his disposal, Rather than revenge, he weeps and he lavishes them with gifts. Joseph's soul is so extraordinary that even in the context of the greats of the Bible, he's a towering figure. He's a skyscraper on the plains of spiritual history. And we have to willfully close our eyes not to see hints of Jesus in the life of Joseph. If you remember Jesus was also sold by sinful men with whom he lived. And as Joseph did, when suffering untold agonies, Jesus forgave them, even as he forgives our sins today. And today he calls his own people brothers and sisters and fellow heirs, much like Joseph did with his family. Joseph is a monumental man living thousands of years before Jesus, but very much like him. <coughs> So with this long trek completed, Joseph descends to the storied Nile Valley and the pyramids. Think about the change in culture that he faced. Every morning, the rising sun was greeted with the chanting of cultic hymns to awaken the gods from their slumber, after which the idols are ritually bathed and sumptuously dressed and breakfasted with special morning offerings. Egypt has multiple gods and they're everywhere. There's local deities, uh, Ta, the god of Memphis, Tha, 
the god of learning at Hermopolis, and Emmon, the hidden god of Thebes. And there's also cosmic gods. Predominant among them was Ra, the sun god, Nut, the sky god, and the three gods of the air, Shu, Geb, and Nu. And there's a pervasive cult of Osiris and its cyclical uh, observances based on the rise and fall of the Nile River. And Pharaoh himself is considered a god. He was uh, called the falcon sky god Horus. So all of this uh, idolatry and all of these multiple Egyptian gods are just assaulting young Joseph on his first day in Egypt as he stands alone trying to figure out what's going on. And with what is essentially a commercial nod, he's sold into this dark world. We see that in verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. So now Joseph is at the epicenter of the darkness. This is an aristocratic house where all the rulers of the land came and went. It's a, a penthouse of Egyptian wealth and culture. And here in Potiphar's house, the world would eventually come to rest on Joseph's shoulders. And he had to sense something of the responsibility uh, from his dream that his destiny would somehow involve his family bowing down to him. But the immensity of that, the scope of that, are still way beyond his knowledge. His dreams bore no hint that he would become their savior two decades later. Of course, we know that Joseph would succeed spectacularly because many of us have heard this story since we were children. But the question is why? Why would it happen? What would enable Joseph to succeed? And it's very clear in this passage, but at first reading, it seems somewhat hidden. But happily, the story leaves no doubt as to the answer as to why Joseph succeeds, because it's stated at both the beginning and the end of the story. Joseph is successful because the Lord was with him. Joseph was successful because the Lord was with him. His success is bracketed with two declarations that the Lord was with him. Look at the beginning, starting at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. Now jump to the very end of the passage, verses 21 and 23. And here we see, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Joseph's success is preceded by two parallel declarations that the Lord was with him. So you have to understand that the theological centerpiece of the story is God, who is present and working on Joseph's behalf. There's other aspects here you may not notice at first glance. Most important, the God who is with Joseph is the Lord, Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God. 
which only Moses would know because it's not even revealed to Moses until we get into Exodus. But Moses is writing this and he's using that name. And that name is used eight times in this account and never again in the remaining eight chapters of the book, except of Joseph's story, that is. Except one time at the very end of the book, uh, Jacob uses it on his deathbed in Genesis 49. But what's even more important is no character in this story ever uses the personal name of God, not even Joseph. It's here in our chapter, the narrator, who's Moses, uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, eight times to tell the reader what's going on. And four of those eight times, he specifically tells us that Yahweh was with Joseph. So if we understand the Joseph story, we have to understand that at the most uncertain time of Joseph's life, when he could see nothing of God, that behind the scenes, the covenant God of Israel is at work to bring about his covenant promises through Joseph. Alone in Potiphar's house with the intimidating architecture of Egypt, dwarfing him, living among idolatrous hymns, Joseph is not alone. Yahweh was with him to bring about a mighty work for his covenant people and for the blessing of the world. And so we see that Joseph experiences spectacular, surprising success. Beginning at verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight, speaking of Potiphar, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph's work ethic uh, doesn't go unnoticed. He advances to be Potiphar's personal attendant and then to overseer over his whole house. And in promoting Joseph, Potiphar becomes the unwitting beneficiary of the covenant promise made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, where he said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the Egyptians' favor to Joseph in turn brought blessing on everything he had. The more favor he showed to Joseph, the better things got. And Joseph was such a great slave that Potiphar realized that the best way to manage his affairs was to forget about him and leave everything to Joseph. And so he did, except for his food. And that's likely because of the ritual preparation at mealtime uh, for that culture. Otherwise, everything is left in Joseph's charge, meaning in Joseph's power. And Potiphar is so confident that Joseph had his best interests at heart that even his wife is under Joseph's care, though not given into his hands. And of course, that leads us right into the next section where we see Joseph's success in facing temptation. Joseph's success in facing temptation, starting at the end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went in the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now Joseph is near the pinnacle of success in Potiphar's penthouse estate. There's no doubt that God was with him, and we're told that he's extraordinarily handsome. And in verse 6, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And obviously that's in his genes, because the only other place that such a phrase is used was back in Genesis 29, and there it's used of his mother, Rachel. They're the only two people in all of Scripture to receive this accolade. And it's here that the story turns, because despite all of his gifts, Joseph suffered from being much too good-looking. I'm sure some of you know what that's like. And here in Scripture is, is the prototype for all fatal attraction. Verse 7, And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Lust-filled men and women are as old as the fall. And overly privileged people, those who have their every desire catered to, often become demanding and out of control. And apparently Mrs. Potiphar was no exception. It seems that she was in the habit of getting whatever she wanted. And after all, Joseph was a slave. In reality, though, we're coming to learn that it was really the mistress of the house who was a slave. And it's a dangerous temptation. The rationalizations here are easy. No one would ever know. His family would certainly never find out they're on the other side of the Sinai. And as we've already noted, Joseph is a slave. His life is not his own. Sexual promiscuity is a daily part of most slave-holding households. Besides, if he gives in to Mrs. Potiphar's wishes, he could enhance his career, a time-honored political strategy. He might rationalize, 
What's so wrong with a little strategic adultery if it furthers the cause? And face it, old Potiphar is gone all the time and isn't meeting his wife's needs. And she's entitled to a little affection. It would actually be the loving thing to do. In today's terms, that's what we would call situational ethics. And even more, who could blame him? Clearly, it's in his blood. Just look at his brothers, Reuben and Judah. And again, not a soul would know. And despite this total lie, those are powerful rationalizations. We have heard people use those very same rationalizations in life today. And you add to this the fact that Joseph knew the dysfunction of his father's favoritism, the scorn of ten brothers' hatred, the betrayal of being sold by those who were responsible for him, the disdain of a slave's life, and a forced move to a foreign soil and a foreign culture. And with this as his bio, Joseph has every reason to be angry, bitter, resentful, cynical, fearful, self-serving, and self-pitying. How could we possibly blame the victim? But Joseph doesn't go for it. And Mrs. Potiphar's three-word proposition is met with this passionate 35-word refusal. Look at verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So in short, Joseph refuses to sin against the trust that's been given him, against the woman's husband, and against God himself. Joseph's integrity is complete. And because he's faithful in all relationships, he could resist being unfaithful in this one. See, this story is not just about sexual fidelity. Joseph's whole life is a seamless garment of moral accountability. His overall faithfulness helped him reject this massive temptation. You have to understand, little sins paved the way for big sins, and Joseph is not walking on that path. It's the power of this quality of life as a whole that enables him to resist this woman's advances. Secondly, look at verse 9. He goes on to say, there's only one thing that my master has withheld from me. He realizes there's only one thing the master has held back, and that's his wife. Now pause for a moment and think back all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When Satan pointed out to Adam and Eve, there's only one thing he's held back from you, what did he say? Isn't that unreasonable? And their immediate response was to want that one thing that God hadn't given them. John prayed earlier about parenting. Tell your kids what they can't have and what do they want. That thing. But Joseph, when he reflects on the fact there's only one thing that his master hasn't given him, actually uses that as the argument against seeking that very thing. So what is Moses showing us here? He's showing you the integrity, the faithfulness, the righteousness of Joseph. And of course, as Mo Moses is showing you this very uh, crucible that Joseph is in, 
in which these qualities are refined so that Joseph can be used for even greater things in God's plan. And of course, the greatest deterrent to falling into sexual sin is Joseph's awareness that God was with him. Because this is what God had repeatedly promised Joseph's forefathers, which he had been aware of all of his life. The grand deterrent to Joseph's sinning is the awareness that God sees all things and that a sin that no one knows about that's committed behind locked doors in a dark room is still done in the presence of a holy God. And Joseph believed that. And I'm convinced that that realization, that conviction of that truth is the strongest deterrent to sin that there is. We all suffer from the temptation to sin when nobody knows. But if Jesus was sitting right there next to you, there's no way you'd do it. We do it because we don't believe he's with us. We somehow rationalize that he can't see. And so Joseph gives this explanation. But notice, despite the great speech, the lady's not giving up. Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. She tries every angle. He pays no attention to her, gives her a wide berth. He never let his hand get near the cookie jar, so to speak. And his actions are instructive to every man and woman who wants to avoid sexual sin. The Mrs. Potiphar's of today are at once material yet fantasy, unreal yet everywhere. Airbrush photos, movies, videos, even on the TV. And maybe Joseph should have seen this coming, but there's little that he could do. He has to be in the house every day to carry out his duties as the overseer. And then we see that Mrs. Potiphar ambushes him, catches, his, catches him unaware, verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. There's both surprise and violence here. Because the tunic Joseph is wearing is something akin to a very long t-shirt, kind of like a night shirt. And there's a struggle as he seeks to free himself. And having untangled himself, he displays this exemplary case of biblical fear as he runs from her presence. Now, Mrs. Potiphar turns out to be a skilled liar. In the words of one Old Testament scholar, a subtle mistress of syntactic equivocation. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds like something we're supposed to avoid. She tailors her lies to enlist the servant's support and then alters them to incite her husband's anger. Earlier, we read that Potiphar had left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and now Joseph's garment is in Mrs. Potiphar's hand. So the first testifies to, jo to uh, Potiphar's trust of Joseph, and the second testified to Joseph's faithfulness to Potiphar. Joseph is a good man. But never mind, the scorned woman assembles the men of the household and falsely claims, verse 14, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in uh, to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me. 
and fled and got out of the house. And then in preparation for her husband, she arranges Joseph's garment there next to her, tells her husband, verse 16, she laid up his garment uh, by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. The Hebrew of verse 14 is now a Hebrew servant of verse 16. To be attacked by Hebrew is bad enough, but to be attacked by a Hebrew slave is worse. And Mrs. Potiphar implies uh, that Potiphar himself is partially to blame, saying of Joseph, whom you have brought among us. Now again, sounds like Adam and Eve. This woman that you gave me. It's no different. You did this, Potiphar. You brought this guy in here. And she also offered when she told the men, she said, he's here to laugh at us. She told her husband, she said, he was here to laugh at me. To underscore her clearly personal devastation. Now you know why Potiphar was gone so much and worked such long hours. Anyway, her lies worked to some extent. Verse 19, as soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. What this tells us, apparently Potiphar is not totally convinced by his wife, because if he was, he would have had Joseph executed and seems to have imprisoned him more out of necessity, leaving him alive should more information come to light. So Joseph is sent away. But even there we find Joseph has success in facing imprisonment. Success in facing imprisonment. We'll turn to the last three verses of our chapter. See, now we have this astounding turn of events. Joseph had gone from the pit in Shechem to the penthouse of Potiphar's estate, and now down to the prison of Pharaoh. I can't imagine there's too many situations worse than an Egyptian prison right around 1800 B.C. But again, we see what a towering figure Joseph is. Never once, whether in prosperity or adversity, does Joseph doubt God. That's amazing. He's ripped out of his house at 17, hauled down to Egypt, one thing after another, emotional roller coaster of all the ups and downs, and yet he still believes God, and he believes that God is with him. He senses God's presence in every circumstance. And now we read that Joseph has never been more of a success than now, starting at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So now we find the themes that open the story are repeated, but at a whole new level. And once again, God is refining the character of Joseph. 
want you to listen. Derek Kidner is a great Old Testament uh, scholar. He wrote this. I thought this was an incredible sentence. I wish I could write a sentence like this. He says, Joseph's outstanding abilities and integrity, crowned with the touch of God, were constant at every level. As prisoner and as governor, he was simply the same man. And so once again, crowned with the touch of God, we see astonishing success. Everyone could see that Yahweh was with Joseph. And Joseph never stopped seeing that reality. He saw it in the pit. He saw it in the penthouse. He saw it in the midst of Mrs. Potiphar's lies. And now he sees it in prison. And that's why he's such an astounding success. How does Joseph's story intersect the lives of God's people today? Simply this. I don't know where God has you in his providence right now. But here God shows you how he protects you from the full extent of the design of the wicked and the evils of the world and how he causes us to be favored in the sight of other people for his purposes. And all the while he's crafting our character. And to be sure, crafting character is going on here in the uh, life of Joseph. The unfolding story makes it obvious that it's God who brought Joseph here for the task of preserving his people. And so God preserves Joseph so that he can preserve God's people. So what is God preparing you for now? Jed alluded to this at the beginning of the service. I think every believer needs to recognize that in God's providence, God has a purpose for you, God has a purpose for his people, and God has a purpose for himself. All of God's plan will one day bring glory to him. And so there's a real sense in which the way you respond to God's dark providences, difficult situations, is an opportunity for you to bring glory to God. And in the midst of those hard times, those difficult situations, those dark providences, will you be able to say, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel 3. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, when... You refuse the easy sin for the hard obedience. You're bringing glory to God in a dark providence. When you refuse the easy sin for the hard obedience, you're bringing glory to God in a dark providence. But know that in those times, you're also encouraging all the other people of God. So whatever God is doing with you, his providences are designed to be an encouragement to the people of God, that as you stand firm, the people of God are encouraged. So every time a family in this congregation faces a crisis, the fact that they bear up in faith proves to be a tremendous encouragement to all the rest of us, especially when we're called upon to bear up in the midst of some other difficult circumstance. But Joseph not only faced difficult situations and hard circumstances, 
He faced temptations, two kinds, sudden temptation and persistent temptation. Some people, especially those who are naturally more impulsive, find sudden temptation to be particularly difficult. Others are more vulnerable to persistent temptation. They can resist the sudden temptation but get worn down when it comes at them like a dripping faucet. And Joseph faced both. He refused one and ran away from the other. And how do you explain that kind of resistance? I think it's impossible to explain merely as the exercise of a strong willpower. I think the key has to be found in Joseph and in uh, the way that Joseph had four godly perspectives. Four godly perspectives. First, he has a proper view of sin. In verse 9, he asked Potiphar's wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He calls it what it is. Sin is still sin, even if it's dressed up in all its finest clothes. And the sin in focus in our text today, the one that's a great temptation for many of us, is promiscuity. But whether we're dealing with sexual sin or the more common sins of uh, gluttony and greed, the prophet Isaiah speaks as loudly to our culture as he did to his own in Isaiah 5. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And frankly, I think we're seeing a lot of that today. It's one thing to do evil and then try to find an excuse for it. But it's another thing to do evil and then call it good. Here in Genesis 39, Joseph has a proper view of sin. He knows it's great wickedness. Second, he has a proper view of himself. He has a proper view of himself. He knows his limitations. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And his choice to flee rather than fight is validated several times in the scripture. We can read 1 Corinthians 6.18 where the command is given to flee from sexual immorality. No doubt Joseph knows the consequences of leaving his coat behind. He could be framed, and he was. But he also knows the dangers of going back for it. And he values a good conscience more than a good coat. Third, he has a proper view of others. It's a proper view of others. Look again at verse 8. Joseph goes on to protest to Mrs. Potiphar. says, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. Joseph knows the meaning of loyalty. Someone said that adultery is of the devil, if for no other reason, because it's the betrayal of an oath and the breach of a trust. Joseph is struck by the terrible act of betrayal that giving in would involve. And then fourth, he has a proper view of God. Again, verse 9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Wouldn't he be sinning against Potiphar? Perhaps. It's not what he says. Again, I'm reminded here of King David. Remember, he came clean regarding his sin with Bathsheba, and he admitted to God in Psalm 51. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And on the surface, it seems ludicrous for David to say that he's only sinned against God. He certainly sinned against Uriah, he had him murdered. He sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against the child that was born who died because of David's sin, and he sinned against the nation. But clearly what he means is that ultimately, sin is against God, and that aspect of guilt is greater than any other. I can't help but think of something that Jesus said in Luke. He said, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And apparently, Joseph believed that. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you that the key to the passage was stated at the beginning and the end, that Joseph was successful because the Lord was with him. It's bracketed with two declarations, uh, each end. Verse 2, we saw his master saw the Lord was with him. And then the end, verse 23, the keeper of the prison saw that the Lord was with him. And Joseph's success is made sure because of these declarations that the Lord was with him. And that phrase brings me to the beginning of Matthew, which we're going to study next year. And in particular, Matthew 1.23, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Our Messiah, Jesus, bears the name Emmanuel, God with us. As believers, then, God is always with us in all of life. And friends, the key to our day-to-day -day success in this life, the key to resisting temptation, is living in the reality that God is with us that Jesus became one of us and now resurrected and ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father, remains God with us. For each of us, that should be an awe-inspiring truth. If you're going to resist temptation, if you're going to remain faithful in the most difficult of circumstances, then knowing this Jesus, this Emmanuel, this God with us, is going to have to be a present reality in your life. It's more than a truth that you know. It's even more than a truth that you believe. It's going to have to be a truth that you own. Or you will fall. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, it's easy to talk about providence. And there are some circumstances and seasons of life where it's easy to believe your providence. But when we're in the dungeon or in slavery, when we're grieving, when we've been surprised, when we've been flattened by the cruelty of a world that's out of control, when things don't make any sense, in those times, Lord, it's the hardest thing in the world to believe in a sovereign God and a good providence. But Lord, you teach us that your providence is both sovereign and good. So by your grace, help us to believe that and to understand something of your purposes in it, even if we don't see all of those purposes until you come again. But we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. God with us, Emmanuel.